This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. We'll begin tonight with a, uh, a very important topic, a topic about friendship. This is a, a topic of, uh, I would say it's more important for the younger crowd. Like, and when I say younger crowd, I'm saying like under 30, but it still goes for the, you know, for, you know, for, for everybody and anybody until 120 or 150, however old you want to push. So, the, this also will also be something to speak about your best friend, your best friend. Who is your best friend? It should be your spouse. That should be your, that should be the best friend. Sometimes it's not, but that is the goal. So, so we're going to try to include both of those. The, um, I hold this in, in a very, very high esteem. And in fact, when looking into schools for my children, one of the things that I look at is the parent body and who the kids are going to be with. So, cause, and this I've seen from personal experience that you have people that are good kids, but they hang around with bad kids, and they end up becoming, they could come from a good family, but they end up hanging out with certain groups, they end up becoming like those groups. As opposed to the other way around, you have people that go, and they come from not the best of, strongest of the families, but they hang out with good kids, and they really get strongly influenced. This is especially true from the teenage years until usually you get married. Then usually, well, the way that it's supposed to be is you're supposed to leave your friends, you know, a little bit behind and focus now on your spouse. Unfortunately, nowadays with all the double dating and all that, which is a entire class in itself, is um, you know the, the friends become part of the whole family. So, um, what was that? You want me to talk about that? No, uh, you don't want me to talk about, about it. Yeah, uh, maybe we'll see if we have time. Okay. So, to begin, the there is a pasuk in Exodus in Shemot chapter twenty three verse five. It says that if you see your enemy's donkey lying. And its burden is on top of him. He has a he has a heavy weight. Then you have to go and you help him. There's a side note that I don't know if we'll get to speak about. What does it mean, enemy? Are you allowed to hate a Jew? What is this enemy referring to? Is it talking about the Palestinians? They didn't want to know what Palestinians back then because it just started to come to existence. Uh, you know, whenever they decided to call themselves Palestinians. So who is an enemy? So actually, there are certain criteria where you're allowed to you're allowed to hate a Jew. If they don't, and again, we're not going to get into it. If you know, if it's a habitual sinner that doesn't do repentance after he gets review, does it count nowadays? The whole thing in itself. But um, then this is why you have some people that just like you know just love everybody for every, which is true. You should love everybody, but there are certain people under certain criteria that it's not a mitzvah to love them. It's a mitzvah to actually hate them. And uh, but granted, now we're not speaking. We're not pinpointing at anybody. We're saying it in a, in a overall stance that you should love everybody. You should love every Jew. You should pay for every Jew. You should try to get every Jew to come closer to Judaism. But Let's say you're going in the street and you see your enemy, whatever this, you know, this is going to mean, and this enemy has an animal and his burden. Now, ordinarily, you see your enemy in trouble, you're not interested in helping him. In fact, you'll be like, you know what, happy that he's doing that. Not a good character trait, but whatever. Say you had a tough day, and that's, uh, that's the way that, uh, you know, that uh, you're feeling. And uh, so the Torah says that, no, 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 that you have to go and you have to help them regardless if he's your enemy, if he's your friend, you have to help them. One of the things is you have to show compassion to either, this is really for the animal, if you realize it, because the animal is the one who's on this heavy burden. But one of the things is that you have to overcome your natural inclination to help somebody else. And this is a very important aspect on it. The, um, there's an interesting side note on this particular uh, pasuk. Now, let's say the guy comes in and, uh, you know, he doesn't like you either. So the feeling's mutual. And uh, he sees that you're helping him. He's like, you know what? I'm not going to do it. You're a mitzvah. You go do it. You don't have the obligation to go and continue uh, helping it. It says only azov tazovimo. You only have to help him if he's helping with you. If he decides and says, "Listen, it's your mitzvah. You do it by yourself. You don't. Uh, you're, you're not obligated to go and to help him." 
the um, and again, it, what's the halacha? Then let's say for the animal still suffering. So do you have to at least do it for the animal? Uh, so it's, a, it's an entire topic in itself. But the idea behind it is is that you are required to help somebody, even if you don't like it. Kal certainly, if you have a friend that needs help, that needs something, of course you should help him. Of course you should help, uh, you know, the, a friend in need. There, uh, you know, and, and this is also an important uh, concept to, to understand that if somebody goes and, you know, you're there to help somebody else and the other guy has no interest in, in getting help. Uh, the example that I use as often because I've dealt with this is like the heroin addict who has no interest in going into rehab, no interest in getting clean. You could go and tell him stories from today until tomorrow. You could show him people that they have to insert the needles into their eyes because they don't have any more veins. You could tell them the craziest stories, but if they're not interested in helping themselves, you can't do it. The same thing with your friend. If your friend is, is so deep in the, in the gutter for certain things and they're not interested in helping themselves, there's very little that you can possibly do to convince them. The first step really is to convince is that you need help and you should help yourself. There, uh, there was once two brothers that they had an inheritance and uh, they, uh, they hated each other to say the least. And they decided that they're going to go pay for a wall to be built between their two uh, territories. We'll call uh, one brother America and the other brother uh, Mexico. Right, and they came in, and I'm just kidding. They, there was two brothers, and they really hated each other, and they wanted to go, and and they wanted. You actually thought about that, huh? So. So the architect came, drew the plans, went into the construction company. They went and they built the wall. Uh, when the brothers came, they saw there wasn't a wall; it was actually a bridge coming, the, closing the two things together. So the one brother said, it was like, wow, the other brother wanted to build a bridge. That's so nice. And the other brother said, wow, this guy wanted to build a bridge. That's so nice. And they reunited. Now, when they went to pay the, um, to the, this, the construction company, they, the, 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 the construction company went to each, to each uh, brother and they said, you know, you owe us X amount of money. He says, no, I never ordered to, to have, uh, you know, a bridge. I wanted a wall. And the other guy said, also, no interested for a bridge. I want a wall. So, the, the construction company said the same amount of material that I would have used for a wall, I made for a bridge. Therefore, pay me for whatever you would have paid me for a wall. And the same idea is that sometimes the same hatred that you would have for somebody, the same amount of energy that you would hate somebody, you could use that for the benefit, for, for the good for that person. And if there's, if there's like a dislike between two people, there is nothing, you know, you know what's like, like people, unfortunately, they like to like, you know, get it to the other guy. You want to know how to get it to the other guy? Be nice to them. That's going to kill them. They'll be like, I'll give you an example. Two people are fighting. Road rage, right? We all live in Brooklyn, right? So we see this on an hourly basis. So you're in road rage. In uh, you're not in road rage. You're sitting there. Somebody else is in road rage. Obviously, two non-Jews that are completely don't follow anything with Judaism or God or anything else, and they're they're idol worshippers. What you know, uh, the, the the scum of the earth, right? And they are screaming at each other. They're screaming at each other and they want... Now, what happens if one of them stops screaming and he says, you know what, you're right, I'm sorry. So the other guy will start screaming, be like, I don't care, and he just keeps on screaming. And then the guy repeats and be like, you know, you're 100% right, it was completely my fault, I really apologize. The more that he does that, the guy, like, he wants to scream, he has anger, he really wants to get it out, but he's like, he's like... Oh, you know, and he just like calms himself down. He doesn't know what to say anymore. And I know I've, I've spoken to couples where one couple doesn't show emotion. Not a healthy thing, uh, but like the, the one of the spouses gets really upset, really angry. And the other couple sort of like shuts down. It's like, you know, you know, like and, and like, you know, they're just like yelling. And the other couple is like, yell back at me. Come on, you know, like, let's get through this. Um, and they would just shut down because if you're not, you fuel fire with fire. If you put a little bit just calm, a little bit of water, it already, already uh, evaporates the situation. So the same thing that if there's a dispute between two friends, if you if you just give a little kindness, it goes a very, very long way. And it's the same energy that you're going to be putting in to hate somebody. You'll put in the kindness and you'll resolve the dispute. Even 
And by the way, this is some people, they're like, you know what, I'll never be friends with that person again. And for some good reasons. There's some people that, yeah, don't deserve to have any, you know, they, they really bring bad influence and, and fine. But there's no reason that there should be a bad feeling. At least that should be, should be, uh, taken care of. The, you know, and, and you know, it's a shame because there's some people who, you know, there's somebody who walks into the room, everybody hates this person. Just like an annoying person, like, oh, you know, like, I just very much dislike this person. And there's no reason, you never know what this person, what, what amazing friend this person can be, or what what an amazing you know thing that they can do, and people just dismiss it based off like you know nonsense. I don't like the face. I don't know whatever you know as for 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 silly reasons. The um, Rav Nachman Rebesov said a story that uh, there was a there was a Jew and a German. They're both hobos, um, and they were you know go collecting from place to place. And the German knew you know he says you know the Jews are more you know they, they give more charity, and that's why you see a lot of you know. People that are 100% out Jews, you know, come in and ask you for a tzedakah. You have tzedakah. Um, and I'm like, and then they'll give you and they'll say Shabbat Shalom, you know, like, you know, and they'll like stretch out like weird parts of the, you know, of the thing. And they'll be like, well, what accent are you from? You know, Christian? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. um, so, and I asked, I've asked them once because like someone came over to me once in Purim and, you, and they were like, it was like the weirdest tzedakah that I've ever heard. It was like just straight, it was like so many syllables in there. And I'm like, I'm like, oh, you know, you're, you're Jewish? They're like, yeah, 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 I'm Jewish. And what's your mother's name? And that would just like threw them off. I, and I felt bad. I mean, like I was just like curious, you know, because I, my real intention was I wanted to pray for, for that, you know, for they, they had a certain Syria. And it was just like, I get the weirdest name. I'm like, I'm like, wow, that's an interesting Jewish name. And they were like, yeah. So I'm like, what's your name? It was the same name as the mother. I'm like, apparently this person knows one Jewish name and everybody's named that, that, that uh, person. Later I found out that uh, it wasn't a Jew. Um, uh, somebody told me it was a gypsy. I mean, I don't know what that means. I'm like, what's a gypsy? Who, who's a gypsy now? What is, what is that? Is that what a gypsy is called? They, they steal things from you. <laughs> so this guy. That's not a stereotype. Yeah. Okay. So anyways, this Jew and this German. They were going, uh, they were going, uh, you know, collecting, and the Jew said, listen, Passover is coming up, Pesach is coming up, let's go, and I'll invite you to a seder. Uh, go to a seder, listen, German and Yiddish is very closely, just pretend that you're, you know, that you're Jewish, and you'll have, you know, a nice big meal after, you know, the night. So he said, fine, they each went in the synagogue, and they waited, and they got, he, one guy invited to one place, the other guy got invited to another place, and the German is sitting over there, the non-Jew German is sitting over there, and he's uh, he gets invited to the seder, and he sits down in the seder, and you know. So what do they come out? The first thing that comes out, seder. If you ever go get, if nobody's ever been invited, you know, been to a real seder before, and they go to the seder, it's like you know, you 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 starve for the first like, depending where you eat by, but it could be a few few hours. And he he's sitting over there, never been to seder before. The first dish that comes out is salt water for the tears. And I was like, well, what, what, what are we drinking tears for? And then he's like, no, you, so you dip a little tiny piece of celery or potato or radish, whatever it is, and you dip that little piece inside, and you sit over there, and this guy's like, he's like, oh, this is, uh, you know, I need, I need real food over here. And uh, so a little, finally, a little while later, they get up to the mouth, and then finally they get up to, or they get up to Mara. They get to the bitter part. This guy finally, he's sitting over there, it's been like three hours, he's like, you know, he's starving, he's, he just wants food, and the first thing he takes, he sees is, you know, like a nice, you know, something dish, he's like, he scoops out a big thing, he takes the mara, puts it in his mouth, his mouth is on fire, and he just gets up, and he's like, you Jews are crazy, he's like, I don't know what you're talking about, this is, the meal is ridiculous, and he runs out of the house. He goes, where does he go? Of course he goes to sleep in the synagogue, because that's the place that's open and allow him to sleep, and uh, he goes to sleep in the synagogue, and, you know, a few hours later, the Jew comes back, Fully, you know, sad, you know, satiated. He's coming over there after four cups of wine, and he's like, "Nusa, how was your meal?" He's like, "Meal? What meal?" 
He says, I eat you know, food for the, that belongs to our cow, and then I eat something that, you know, is spicier than anything that I ever tasted in my life. I ran out of there. This place is crazy. He says, no, you should have waited. It was like a few minutes later. They would have given you a full, you know, three-course meal. The same idea is you, you have when people, when they go into Judaism, and they go into Judaism, they expect, I kept the first Shabbat, give me my wife, my money, my everything I want in a, in a plate. Where are you, God? God doesn't exist. I haven't, I kept Shabbat. I, you know, I bought, co- you know, people have tell me, like, I, you know, I've eaten kosher today. <laughs> Congratulations for doing what you're supposed to do. Do you say that when you pay taxes? You go to the government and be like, hey, by the way, I pay taxes today. Like, what do you want, a ribbon? Yeah, this is what you're supposed to be doing. Um, but sometimes when people go and they become religious, they become more, and they feel like, okay, all of a sudden, like, where is God? So they, they just leave everything. They don't wait for it. And sometimes the bitterness, says the Rav Nachman Abrasav, it's necessary to purify your body a little bit just to get for where you're, you know, need to. And then slowly you'll see the, the, you know, the blessing that, um, that comes. The same idea is with friends. Sometimes the friends are a little bitter. And sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's good. And we're soon going to see, like, sometimes friendship should be a little bit bitter, especially when you're talking about constructive criticism, when nobody likes to hear it. The, you know, the, there are many, in fact, I wouldn't say anybody would, would consider their friends a bad friend. I've asked people that have very bad friends. I'm talking about friends that are addicted to drugs. You know, they're religious. Their friends are not religious. And I say, you know, like, are your friends? Are they good friends? Yeah, they're great guys. No, they're unbelievable. I mean, they, you know, they have some issues, but they're great people. I'm like, they might be a great person, but they have good influence. People are like, no, no, don't, don't worry about it. And for me, I don't get influence. It's not, it's, you know, the King Solomon says like this. King Solomon says in Mishlet, in chapter 13, verse 20, it says, one who walks with the wise will become wise, and one who's associated with fools will come to harm. How true is this statement? You go with wise people, you end up becoming wise. You go with, with idiots and fools who all they do all day is, is drugs or talk about nonsense and play video games nonstop. You're going to end up becoming just like them. Also, King David, he wrote in Tehilim, the first, the first, the first pasuk, the first chapter, Praise is the man that did not follow the counsel of the wicked. This is how he started, Tehilim. Make sure you don't follow the counsel of the, of the wicked. And we see also, there's many sources for this. You look up in Pekei Avot, in the first chapter. It says, Make yourself a rabbi, and purchase for you a friend. doesn't mean go to the friend store and be like, yeah, I have one place to go. Like, I want a solid one, like a really good one. It means that you have to go and you have to acquire, just like you go into, when you purchase a product, you have to do research for it. Uh, this is like my thing. I, I research everything. I, I do tons of research on everything. And that's why, you know, you can usually see the classes also come, you know, a, a little bit like that. So the um, when you're buying a product, especially if you're spending a lot of money, you want to research and make sure that's good. If you're investing in a friendship, you want to make sure that this is a good friend that you're investing with. And buying a, you know, a friend doesn't necessarily mean like, here, here's a hundred bucks per week. Please be my friend. All right. That guy is not going to be your friend. Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, anything but friendship. But what it means is when you're, when you're purchasing a friend, it means that you invest in it. You invest time, effort, emotions, and, and everything that you need in a friendship, and that will grow. And the, the Pekia says it's, it's a key to success in life, to have a good friend, to pick you up when you're down, especially when you're not married yet. You need this boost of morale sometimes. You need this boost of going towards the right direction. There are people that, you know, that because of one friend, they started coming to Torah classes. There are other people, if they wouldn't have the friend, they would never show up. They're not interested. But because of a friend asks them, they'll say, fine, I'll, I'll go. The, you know, the idea also behind this is 
that you could have a rabbi teach you for hours and hours and hours. And fine, you understand the concepts, theoretically you understand the whole thing. But if you have a friend that you build it together, that goes a thousand times further than any rabbi would ever go and tell you about it. And I've seen this, this is tried and true, that when you have, uh, I've seen people that went through the yeshiva system and whatever, they came out like, eh, chati chati. And after they, you know, they had good friends and from their friends, they really became like unbelievable. They became like really, and I even remember this when I was in Israel and when I was in my dorm, and there were people that, that, you know, so, so you had, you know, places where you slept with, you know, a group of uh, guys, so you had, you know, like every room in my yeshiva was four people and four people. I've noticed that people that came in strong, but they went in just the dorm, they were just sleeping in, in the living quarters with people that were not on the highest level, sunk. And the people that were with with really strong people, they grew, and you could actually see that they weren't even friends; they were just living together. Like you know how guys live. You know, you could sit, you could live together, and never say a word to another person. Not weird at all, um, you know. And 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 it's completely fine. But yet they still got influence for girls. It's very weird. Yeah, for guys, it's like yeah, whatever. Like what do we need to speak about? You know, it's it, there's nothing to there's nothing to talk about. There's nothing to talk about. Um, um, anyways, so remind me of some stories, but I, I should not say it. Anyway, so. No. <laughs> yeah, maybe afterwards I have time. Um, so the the bottom line is is nothing can be more detrimental than a bad friend, and nothing can be greater than a good friend. And I want to share with you a story. There's a story that I read in a, in a, a, one of the Holocaust books. An unbelievable story. This uh, so. Auschwitz, when you hear the word Auschwitz, you usually think about the concentration camps, the labor camps, you know, the severity. But Auschwitz was actually, a, you know, it was, was, a, was a large city. And they had a large part of uh, Bubba of Hasidim that, uh, that existed over there. The date was September 5, 1939. And the Nazis marched in. And the first thing that they did when they got into Auschwitz is they took the largest synagogue, the most prominent synagogue, and burned it to the ground. There, they started demolishing everything to make way for the, for the construction of the camps that were to be built. This particular person who's saying the story, his name is Yosef, and uh, he was 13 years old at the time. He had uh, his parents and four siblings. They were all slaughtered in the, you know, right in the beginning in the con- in the concentration camp. And uh, he was lucked out, and instead of getting into a concentration camp, he got into a labor camp, which was slightly better. What I mean slightly better, which means is that you didn't have the smell of rotting flesh from the crematorium is slightly better. Uh, the slightly better is that you had uh, a bed that was shared with six other men, but you still had, you know, the, you had a slightly better, um, you know, existence. The person that was in his in his bunk was a person by the name of Nachman. He was 32 years, uh, he was, I'm sorry, he was 26 years old at the time, and he had two children. He had a boy, of th- a three-year-old boy, and a six-year-old girl. And his wife was in the woman's section. And in fact, they actually let them visit each other. They had like visiting times that they were able to, to visit each other. But over the course of time, Nachman said, he says, you know what, it's so, uh, you know, I can't live like this. I can't be separated from my family. And he decided that he's going to go and escape. And now, a concentration camp is very different than a labor camp. Labor camp wasn't, wasn't as heavily guarded as a concentration camp. The fence weren't, elect- you know, weren't electric. You were able to, and in fact, this, this particular concentration camp was near a very dense forest. And a few inmates actually successfully escaped. So it wasn't such a far-fetched idea. So this Nachman went and he orchestrated the entire thing. He had some friends from a Christian background that were able to assist him. And he arranged with his family. And he told his close friend, uh, Yosef, 
Now, they were very, very close. This, uh, you know, and Yosef was very grateful for that because he was 13 years old at the time. He lost his entire family and he felt, you know, this, this boy Nachman to be as his big brother. They would sit, you know, late at night and tell stories to each other and boost each other's morale and their spirit and speak about what they're going to do after they get liberated and after they get out and just like, just to elevate themselves. And they got really, really close. They became best of friends. And when not, when he heard that Nachman has to go and run away from, you know, from, you know, he's escaping with his family, he, of course, didn't want him to leave, and he didn't have an option of going with them, but he understood the, the you know, his predicament, and he says, you know, I wish you only, only the best of luck. So the morning came when the, the escape was planned, and Nachman, early in the morning, when it was still dark, he wakes up, and he's t- he gathers his wife and children, and they start making their way out. They start digging under the fence, and they make it under, and they start running towards the forest. But some somehow, someone spotted them, the lights came on, the sirens came on, the dogs started started running and Nachman started running and the, the, the SS guards were running chasing after them as they were covering ground Nachman saw that he wasn't going to make it so he took his nearest child and he started whistling the code for this Christian friend to come out of the hiding spot he saw the Christian friend in the, in the distance he took his daughter who was six year old at the time and he threw her as fast as, as far as he can to the Christian and he said run 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 and he sort of blocked whatever he can of the of, of the SS guards the daughter got away but him his wife and his son all got caught and, you know, when you're escaping the concentration camp, it's not like, stop, stop, don't do that again. You get timeout, you know, you gotta, it's not what they do. They, what they do is they gather everybody, everybody gather around, and they ordered Nachman to, to start digging a hole. And he would start digging a hole, and as he got to, to the hole, he lined up, the, the Nazis lined up, it was a hole big enough for three people, it lined up the boy, the mother, and the father. They aimed their rifles, and all of a sudden, the, you know, the, one of the leaders of the, of the camp started running over. He says, what are you, stop, 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 stop. What, what are you guys doing? He says, what do you mean? This guy escaped where we're, you know, we're ending it, right here. So he says, no, 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 you can't, you can't kill him. He's, he's my best guy. He's, he does, he's the only one who knows how to do, work the bulldozer. So the, the SS guards were like, okay, but, uh, he says, but you don't need the wife and the child. And the guy says, no, 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 not at all. So they made him sit and watch his wife and child get murdered in front of him and get buried in the same grave that he that he dug out for himself. And, you know, he got back to the bunk that night and he just, you know, it was a night that tears just never ended from his, uh, uh, you know, from his, from his eyes. And a short while afterwards, when he sort of recuperated, it was very interesting because Yosef is saying the story, he says, you know, like he didn't become a Muslim man. He didn't become a dead man living. He actually still gave a lot of attention to Yosef and he still tried to boost and he boosted each other's morale. Then he kept on speaking about his, you know, his, his dead wife and his dead child. And, but he kept on obsessing about his daughter. He's like, his six-year-old daughter is out there somewhere. He's like, well, I wonder what's going on with her. And uh, a few months go by this way, and um, and he says uh, the man, the person who's saying the story says he'll he'll never forget the day of Nachman's death. It was the fourth Dalit Tammuz, the fourth day of the Tammuz, which is in the summer. The the it was four o'clock in the morning, and the guards burst into the room, and they come, they find Nachman, they pull him out, and they go, they bring him right out to the, to the same place that he buried his his uh, wife and his son, and they said, open it. And he didn't know what's going on. And he opened it. Apparently, it came back from the high Gestapo headquarters that you know the, his ability to live, you know, did not. You know, he was if he tried to escape, no matter how good he is, he's getting killed. And they he dug open his grave with his of his you know wife and child, and he, you know, he also was saying the story. He says, you know, like as as he stood up. And, you know, they, they made you stand up and, or get on your knees before they shot you. He turned around, Nachman turns around and he scans. He, they call the entire camp. Everyone has to, everyone has to watch this. They woke everybody up at 4 a.m. to watch this. And he, he scans the entire crowd until he finds Yosef. 
his close friend, his you know, 13-year-old friend. And he sees them and he screams them in Yiddish and he says, Yosef, remember, I have a child. And that was the la- and then suddenly it was silence, and then the silence was broken by a large gunshot, and then Nachman's body fell limp, where he reunited with his wife and son in Gan Eden. And Yosef said, you know, he said over there, he was shocked, he couldn't even say, he knew that he had a mission now. He is, no matter what's gonna happen, if he survives this, he will search the entire world for his best friend's daughter to make sure that she's okay. And, uh, so they got liberated, it was January 19, uh, was a 45. It was, uh, that he, they, they liberated the, um, you know, the camps, and they went, and, and, uh, first thing that he did was, he started looking for all his family members. He had 50 family members in the area, this guy Yosef. And he searched from place to place, could not find a single family member. So the next thing that he started doing is searching for, you know, this, this daughter, this, this girl, Chayla. And he, he searched first for the family and he found that her entire, her entire family besides her parents were all also killed except he found one living brother. That living brother's name was Libel. This guy, so that he searched high and low until he finally was able to, um, uh, to find him. And he said, listen, he says, your brother, you know, had a daughter and she escaped. We, you know, you have to find her. And he says, he says, you know, of course I'll do whatever I can to find my brother's, uh, you know, uh, lost daughter. And they, you know, they both searched, they both sort of separated their ways. And even though, even though Nachman told his, you know, this, this girl's uncle to go find her, he still felt that his words were directed at him and he's the one who needs to go and needs to, 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 you know, to find this, uh, this girl. And he even said, he said, listen, if he, maybe his brother's not up for it, I'll adopt her, I'll take it on. Whatever it takes, he feels he owes this guy everything. So, time goes by and Yosef gets married. And um, he, through the intervention of the Bab of Rebbe, he was able to immigrate to the United States. And he lived in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And in 1958, he started, so he continued, throughout this time, he continued looking for this girl, highlights. Like, where is she? He searched everywhere. He sent letters to every newspaper, searched for it, and nothing doing. He ended up speaking to someone who said that he saw... This guy, this is the brother of this guy, um, uh, um, Nachman, with a little girl, and they know that they made an aliyah to Israel. So when he heard they made an aliyah to Israel, he started sending out and putting out ads in paper week after week. If you know anybody about this, please contact me, which was very common after the Holocaust. This is how people tried to uh, reunite with family members. But nothing, you know, no bait. In 1958, the Baba Rebbe was going to visit Israel for the first time. So he was lucky enough to be part of the entourage that would go and visit Israel. And he went, the first thing that he did was search everywhere, visit every orphanage, every place that he could possibly think of that maybe would have some sort of, of information on this girl. And he found nothing. And when he returned to his visits, uh, 1962, 1964, 1968, and 1970, every single time he intensified his, his search, but still came back with, uh, with nothing. He ended up having five children. And incidentally, four of those five children married Israeli spouses. So his trips to Israel increased in, you know, bar mitzvahs and weddings and bris and all these things. So he kept on coming back to Israel every single time. His main focus in life was still to find this girl. Finally, somebody went and told him, and, and this was in 1986. Somebody went and told him, and said there's a, there's a museum in Tel Aviv that has a list of all the children that came to, to Israel via the youth aliyah from, from Europe. He says, go in there, they have a list, maybe you'll be able to find it. So he went, he searched, and he actually found 
his, his uh, you know, the, the brother of Nachman's address and information of it. He was so happy. The first thing that he did is he took a taxi straight, no matter, like, like cross country. He took a taxi, went to visit uh, this person. When they, you know, when they met, you know, it was just full of tears and, and reunion and shrieking and excitement. And finally, you know, they broke away and they were like, you know, he asked him, he says, you know, Yosef asked, asked him, he says, so where's Chayla? So she's like, he's like, oh, Chayla. He says, you know, she came with me to Israel, and she says, what a wonderful child, what a wonderful person. She got married at a young age, and then unfortunately, at the age of 23, she died of cancer. So, he was like, what? His whole life came crashing down. He says, he feels, you know, like he promised this. He felt like this was what he needed to do for Nachman. And he felt so empty, so void inside. So... Then, you know, the brother says, he says, but, you know, there was a daughter. And he's like, a daughter? He's like, well, tell me more about this daughter. He says, to be honest, I, you know, I don't know. She was, you know, three years old when Chayla died. And, you know, I, I don't know. She's like, so tell me where she is. Let me go find her. And he says, listen, you know, Chayla's husband, after she passed away, he remarried very quickly. And the wife very cruelly insisted she doesn't want to raise anybody else's children. And you have to send her to adoption. So they, so they placed her in an orphanage. And the, being the fact that, you know, Chayla and Nachman's brother didn't have good terms, his, the husband would refuse to tell him where, which orphanage they were placed. And I have no idea, um, you know, what, you know, what, you know, where she is and, and what, she, you know, what, what's with her now. So now Yosef, he stopped looking for, for Chayla and now he intensified his search now for his, for Nachman's granddaughter, uh, this little girl. And years passed. And he still refused, refused to give up. Every time that he went to Israel, he used to keep on visiting. Uh, you know, at a certain point in time, Nachman's brother passed away, but he kept on visiting his widow. And he kept on pressing her, maybe you have any information. Like every visit, it was like he was an annoying guy. Like kept on bringing it up, kept on rehashing it. Come on, get me something. And uh, she's, you know, whatever she gave, she gave. Finally, years go by and she gets a phone call and she's shrieking. She's like, Mazel tov, Mazel tov. He's like, whoa, what's a Mazel tov? I was like, what happened? You had a baby? What, what's going on? And she's like, I found the address and I found the name of where this granddaughter lives. So he happened to be in Israel time. He ran. He took a taxi straight to her and with his daughter, with his daughter Rivka. He went and she wrote the, the name and the address on a piece of paper and she handed it over to Rivka, the daughter of, of Yosef. And Rivka opens up the paper. She looks at it. She turns white and she faints. She literally falls on the floor, fainted. Uh, when she gets revived, you know, when she, she get, comes back, she's like, uh, she goes to her father and she says, you know, Nachman's granddaughter, her name is Hindi and she's my best friend for the past who knows how many years. She says, I married the son, she married the son of a big rabbi, he married a student of, this, of a big rabbi. Their husbands learn together in the same place. This, they're so close, these two girls, they do everything together. They go to classes together, they do chesed together, they go walks together, they do everything for the children, everything's together. This is her best friend. So, the, the right away, the, fir- the first thing I did is they took another taxi right to the, um, and by the way, Israel taxis are expensive, so that's the thing, you know? So, yeah. so. Yeah. They take right away to, um, uh, to, to meet this, do- this, this Hindi and they, you know, reunite and Yosef says a story, he says, you know, like, this girl Hindi became a fifth daughter to mine. And, you know, he celebrated all the family celebrations together. Uh, and, and he sa- and he continues the story and he says, you know, the story's still not over. He says, uh, years after that, he went to do a tour of Poland with his rabbi. And they went to visit, uh, you know, this, uh, you know, like Auschwitz. They went to visit all the all the grave sites of the holy people. And they noticed in the Hasidic grave, uh, you know, uh, cemetery, there was after they prayed by the big rabbis, they noticed something very peculiar. There was a a sort of an enclosed, like great, like a little tiny graveyard with like three graves inside, right in the middle. And it didn't look; it looked really out of place. So, out of curiosity, Yosef went and looked at it. And when he and when he looked at it, he he's like he's like, how is this possible? It's Nachman. 
his wife and his son are all buried in the same thing. And then he did some a little bit of research, one phone call to the to the you know to the um, cemetery place, and it turns out that the you know Leibel, the brother of Nachman, went and did after you know after uh, um, the liberation of the concentration camps, he you know went and arranged that they should be removed from where they were buried and put in an actual Jewish cemetery. And he was so emotional that he started crying and saying Tehillim right in front of his his very close friend and you know his wife and and, and the son. And when the rabbi, after they were finished, they're walking and see how emotional he was over there. The rabbi walked in and says, is everything okay? So he told him the whole story of what happened from this, from the beginning of Nachman and his friend and his daughter and everything. So the rabbi says, you know, it will be an honor. Let's say Kaddish for this, for this family. And he says, you know, please. So they gathered 10 people and the rabbi went and led Kaddish for this, um, you know, for this family. And Yosef says, he says, you know, he had a, he had a feeling that, you know, this, you know, finally the circle was complete. The circle of true friendship, of true undying love. He felt that he was able to do something, something for his friend. That is what a real friend does. That no matter what happens and how many things he went through in life and how many things he could have said, okay, fine, you know what, it was long ago. No matter what, he kept on continuing and kept on. And what happened? How miraculous. You see how Hashem works, how God works, that even though he couldn't help it, he didn't know, but his daughter was helping this girl for like already 10 years, 5 years, who knows how many years she's been helping him as a, as a close friend. So you do what you can do and you don't know what God is going to be able to do. The, um, you know, the... Most of our, you know, friendships, are, you know, unfortunately, sometimes, unfortunately, other times, they occur by themselves. Why are you friends with this person? I don't know. We took a bus together once, and then, you know, <laughs> two girls, and we start talking, and then that's it, you know? The next thing you know, you know, they're best friends. So, the, the, the idea with, with friendship is sometimes you have to go and actively go and chase after a friend. You know somebody who's good? Go and try to get, become friends with that. Don't be one of those knowing people. Be like, hey, want to be a friend? 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 Hey, let's be friends, you know? You know, that's, that's like weird. It's going to scare people away. But you have to actively pursue good friends, not just let, you know, whatever happens, happens. If you have a bad friend, get rid of that friend. The Mishnah Pirkei Avot says that you, you have to distance yourself from a bad neighbor. And don't befriend an evildoer. Because it says in the Gemara, it says, Woe is to a wicked person and woe is to his neighbor. The, the Bartonur explains in this. And he says, you know, that... If somebody goes and becomes friends with somebody who's in, you know, a rasha, and you really have to think if your friend is a rasha or not, because nobody thinks that, oh yeah, my friend is a rasha, my friend is an evil person. But if you know what they do, they might be, okay, listen, maybe it's better to, to distance away from these type of people. But let's say you don't, and you connect to this type of person, then when this person gets paid back from God, and it's not going to be in bonuses, when it gets paid back, it says, oh, rasha, then everybody in the surrounding circles also are going to go get paid back from it. The, you know, so it's something that you have to know, and you shouldn't be one of those and say, like, you know, listen, it's good for him now, he's having a good life, he's very wealthy, very successful, hey, let me be friends with him, maybe I could get something out of it. Unfortunately, this is how people, you know, think. Um, so, you should never say that, oh, you know, he's going to get paid, yeah, in, in the next world. God could pay in an instant. And if you happen to be in that vicinity and you're close and he, God's paying him, you're in the same boat. Whether you're evil or not, doesn't matter. You're getting paid equally. So it's very, very beneficial to stay away from that. Even more so when you're friends with somebody who is a wicked person, you know, people tend to flatter their friends. You know, like, oh my, you know, like a friend calls up, like, oh my gosh, I did something terrible. What'd you do? No, it's not so bad. You know, you're really, you are so stressed out. It's okay. You know, don't feel bad. You know, cause they think as a good friend, I make the other person feel better. I'm like, no, just the opposite. If someone does something wrong, a good friend says, you're an idiot. You're a fool. He says, what are you doing? What do you, you know, that, that is what a true friend does. A true friend doesn't go and flatter somebody. And unfortunately, it's a, by the way, it's a sin to flatter an evil person. The, um, you know, and, and, you know, that the, the 
you have to think about also, the Tana doesn't tell you to always be worried. You know, there's some people that they're always scared of any, everything bad happening. Oh no, this guy, this guy, I, I, I know, I know he's a sinner. He says, I'm not gonna stay away from him, I'm gonna stay away from him. So you're constantly worried, okay, he's gonna get punished, he's gonna get punished. That's not healthy also. But at the same point, don't think that God's not gonna pay back the sinners. God pays back everybody equally to, you know, exactly the payment that they deserve. And, you know, there was somebody who was, you know, overly, you know, righteous of himself, if I may say, that, uh, you know, everything is okay. And this guy, his name was Haman. He thought nothing's gonna bad is gonna happen to him, and you see what happened with him. So you should never underestimate the power that of payback. I guess you can you well, can use that word. Good, so you get payback uh-huh. on that circle of mm-hmm. things instead of that. Absolutely, yeah. Everything's measured for measure. The the Rambam says also the you know there are many people even before I get to that there are many people think that I don't get influenced. I get this all the time, and I laugh. I laugh at their face. I'm like an evil laugh. I'm like, Mwahaha. I'm like, you think so? I'm like, you fool. Uh, you like, oh, yeah, I don't. I, I speak to people. And I'm like, there's a guy that I spoke to. And he says, he, you know, I started, you know, he came to my class and he started speaking nonsense. Like, oh, he started asking questions. You know, the Torah, is this really, why would God say this? Is this really what God says? It's the rabbis, not this. You know, it's not really legit. It's a ra- always the rabbis. Everyone blamed everything about the rabbis. So, you know, I was like, what's going on? I'm like, this guy was so good. He was like such a strong man. Later I find out he started hanging around with the wrong crowd. So I spoke to him. I spoke to him in private and I said, listen, you know, you know, you're hanging around bad crowd. He's like, it's like, no, like, yeah, but you know, like I'm trying, I'm making him better. And I'm like, come on. I'm like, who are you fooling over here? The people tell me this all the time. You know, I knew a person that, uh, he, uh, he befriended someone from the opposite gender for Kiev purposes, strictly, you know, like for, for Kiev, you know, obviously. And it wasn't long, it really wasn't long before um, she did Kiev on him in, in, in not a Torah dick away. So it, it's, you know, and, and what happens, what happens, you know, people think like, oh, no, no, I'm going to be strong enough. This particular person that I'm speaking about. He felt so strong. He doesn't even know about it. He like, it's, you don't realize when you fall. He started questioning this. He started praying. He stopped praying. He stopped doing all these things because he thinks he's not getting influence. People don't even realize when they are getting influence and when not. There's a story told. The Ben Ishai brings down the story. And he says that uh, there was once a, um, a man, a very wealthy man, who lived in a city that was, uh, you know, a bunch of wicked people that were living there. And he needed to live there for whatever reason. And his daughter was getting ready for marriage. And he wanted only the best. He was able to afford the best. You know, he was able to pay for a guy to send a learn for the rest of his life. So he went over to the, to the nearby yeshiva and the nearby town. And he says, he goes to the rabbi and says, I want your best guy to come marry my daughter. I will, you know, he would live a life that he could go and, and devote his entire life for Torah. So... They, the rabbi went and picked out one particular guy. Says this is the best guy. If you, you know, you could promise that he'll gladly go. They worked it out. It was Mazaltov, and the guy went and uh, he moved in with. Uh, back then, you would move in with your in-laws. He had a attic, and he he took the entire attic, the the father-in-law, and he basically gutted it up, filled it up with books. He says you have your whole bet midrash over here, and books was very expensive back then. He says, but you have all that. You never have to leave over here. So the son says, what do you mean? You know, son-in-law says, what do you mean I'm going to stay over here? He says, well, let me go out. Let me go. He's like, no, you don't understand. The people here are very wicked. You can't you can't uh, mingle with them. He says, no, what do you mean? He says, maybe I could go and be makar of them. He says, you know, Torah is like a light. A small light dispels a lot of darkness. So maybe I'll be able to. He says, you don't understand the following. He says, these people, very bad people, stay away from them. And they always argued back and forth, Let's go, let me go, I can do it, I can do help. The follower says, you don't understand, no. Finally, the follower saw that he wasn't getting the hint. So the follower came up to him once and says, listen, I have a question for you. 
And he says, being that you're a very learned man, he says, you know, I was in the kitchen, we had a large pot full of meat, and a non-Jew happened to come in, and he accidentally dropped in a piece of non-kosher meat into the stew. So, is it allowed, am I allowed to eat it, are we not allowed to eat it, you're the learned, you're the, you know, the chacham of the town, what's the, what's the So, he says, you know, the chacham is very simple, I have to go inspect it, let me see, I have to see how big the piece of meat was, how big the pot was, and he goes, the son-in-law looks at the meat, he looks at the pot, and he says the whole pot is bad. Not only that, you have to also be, you know, put the, the pot in scalding water. You have to, you know, cleanse it in, in, in its all in its essence. And the, the father-in-law says, I don't understand. He says, but it was just a small piece. He says, yes, but this small piece added to the flavor, and hence everything is not, is, is, is not kosher, and you have to dispose of everything. So the father-in-law said, fine, if this is the halakha, I, I trust you, I believe in it, and I accept it, the whole thing is in the garbage. So the next day, and the father-in-law gets up to the, to the son-in-law and says, he says, you're not going to believe it. He says, I made a deal today. We're going to have the most delicious meat that you have ever tasted. So the son-in-law says, well, you know, what do you mean? So he says, you know, I was in the, I was in the, um, in the marketplace. And as I was walking, I bought a small, you know, piece of, of meat. And as I was walking, there was, there was a Gentile store selling, you know, kosher meat. And my meat accidentally fell in his meat. So I said, you know, based on the logic that you gave me, if the small meat piece, it makes, it turns into the entire, the, the small meat of non-kosher turns the entire pot into, into, into non-kosher food, which means there's a small piece of kosher can turn the entire pot of, of non-kosher food into kosher food. So I purchased the entire pot, we're gonna have a delicious stew for tonight. And the son is, the son is turning all colors. He's like, what are you, are you crazy? He says, what do you mean? He says, he says, whoever heard of such a thing? A piece of non-kosher meat can make can make kosher meat non-kosher, but a piece of kosher meat cannot make non-kosher meat kosher. So, the father-in-law smiled and he says, he says the same way. He says, don't think, he says, you're a little piece of kosher meat in a non-kosher town. Don't think that you could go into the kosher town and think you could change everything. And a lot of people think this way. They think, and I'm not saying that you can't do a kiruv. You have to do kiruv. You have to help it. But you have to be careful at what expense. There are certain people that they mingle and they're the only guy who keeps Shabbat in the entire crew. I'm like, come on, what do you think is going to happen eventually? Eventually you're going to end up becoming like them. Not that they're going to become like you. People think they're stronger than they really are. For men, I could say this 100%. I don't know about women, but men think they could, they could accomplish anything. Pick up a house? Sure. I need to work. I need to stretch a little bit, you know, and we, we could do this. You know, and they, they can do anything, and they think they're invincible. Could be. I think women in this area would probably be the same. No one... Yeah, so... The... You know, the... the what, what you need to do is is you need to actually go and proactively look for a good friend. And if you have a bad friend then you have to be proactively removing yourself from your bad friend. And I've told this to people all the time. I'll give you some, some tips on it. That uh, there was one, you know, some people, uh, you know, have told me that, you know, it's very hard. They have a bad friend, but what are you supposed to do? They've been friends for like, you know, like a hundred years, which literally means in girl time, like, I don't know, six weeks. So um, <laughs> they say, you know, I've been so close to this person. I can't, what, you know, what I'm supposed to do. So I said, it's a very simple tactic. If you don't want to get uncomfortable, just always be unavailable. For the beginning, like okay, we're going to hang out. We're going, I don't know, whatever girls do, uh, pick up flowers. Um, we're going and and you know, I don't know, coffee. Okay, that makes sense. So so um, oh, I'm sorry, I insulted you. He's going for drinks. Okay. Shopping would have been a better answer. Girls like flowers. Was I that wrong? All right, never mind. I take it back. So, yeah, the the I'm sorry. Huh? <laughs> yeah. All right. So, so wait a minute. So this whole flower business is a, is a fraud. Yeah, of course. Not to speak to my wife. Yeah, the men are buying flowers. Not. 
It's not. It's a good thing you have to write notes. All right. It's a good thing I hear about this. So. A bouquet of lottery tickets. <laughs> so, anyways, so um, the you know you become unavailable. Become unavailable. They call up. They're like, hey, listen, I want to hang out. I, no, I'm can't. I'm busy. I'm doing whatever. You know, I'm doing. I can't go. And eventually, you'll slowly drift away. And eventually, you hang out once in a blue moon, as opposed to once. And it slowly, slowly becomes easier not to hang out. Thank you very much. It becomes easier not to hang out. So that's a good tactic. I mean, it's obviously, it's best. If it's a bad person who's causing you to fall. You stop it immediately. That would be the best. And we see. Um, the, you know, speaking, uh, you know, about like, um, you know, Shebet Ruven, you know, Dasana and Abraham, they were wicked people, but it says, the, the Chazal tell us that why did they associate with Korach? They associated with Korach because they were in the vicinity. Shebet Ruven was right near Shebet Shemeh, and they, because of that, they, they were associated with the vicinity, and because of that, they fell into the, um, in, in, into the trap. And this is why, this is why, wasn't Korach influenced by his wife or something? Ah, yes. Next thing we're talking about. <laughs> Who is... Oh, that and open the palace. Yes, that's exactly where I'm leading up to. So, yeah, it says also you have to distance yourself from a bad neighbor. Now, who is your closest neighbor, your closest friend? Your spouse, either your wife or your, your husband, depending on which gender you are. Which I have to say that nowadays. <laughs> so, um, being that as it may be, the uh, you know you have to be careful how you choose your spouse. If you choose a bad spouse... This is going to be, you know, the end of you. You're going to be a slowly on a decline. The a person always has to mo- make sure and they seek a, a righteous spouse. You look at On Ben Pelet versus the wife of Koch. Wife of Koch goes over to him and says, "You know, why are you working for Moshe?" As if he was working. So why are you why are you following Moshe? Go start your own business. Go and get into your own. Let them follow you. And he says, "You know what? You're right. Maybe I should do that." And his wife pushed him. I don't know if she thought it was the right thing, but he pushed him basically to his demise and her demise as well. On Ben Pelet's wife. She went and she says, I don't understand. Why are you following Korah? He says, whether you're following Korah, you're following Moshe, you're still under. He's still not the first guy. He's still not the main guy. Stay away from them. What are you going to deal with that? And he says, no, I can't. You know, I promise him. I my word. My word is a word. I have to go with that. So what did his wife do? Fed him some wine, made him fall asleep, and then made sure that, uh, you know, the men didn't come in to, you know, to wake him up. What she did was that Uh That's why I specifically didn't say it because I didn't want to get to that. Um, so it's an interesting. She's you know. Well, maybe we'll speak about it after so we have time. It's an interesting, very interesting topic in itself. She uncovered her here to show that she's immodest. So then all the Korah's followers were like, you know, oh, you know, everyone thinks they're righteous. No matter they could be stealing from the bank, you know, still give charity. So you know, they they go and they say, no, no, no. He says, what do you mean? He says, uh, you know, that she's she's not a, she's not a modest woman. We have we don't want anything to do with that. Because of that, it saved her. It saved her um, her life. Um, and her husband's life because they, they all they all perished they all died. The you know be, this this is one of the the, the ideas is that um, there was you know I had a, a close student of mine that was dating a girl and this girl was you know and he didn't even tell me this until afterwards. This girl was not the best influence on him. Kept on you know you know telling him stuff that he should do and telling him stuff and not like in you know like against the Torah way. And uh, eventually you know they broke it off. And he said he said you know like you know I realized that she was just pulling me down so hard and, and I saw where my life was going and I was like you know what I don't want it. And he broke it off. Now Baruch he's married to a very good girl who pushes him to learn, pushes him really strong to learn. Baruch very happily married. But there's sometimes when people in the dating world that they they you know they date and they end up losing a lot of their spirituality. They end up falling very, very strong. I know a, a couple that, um, you know, I've said this story before because this is something that it's constantly in my, um, you know, in my mind, that he 
is, you know, doesn't wake up, doesn't, doesn't go pray with Amiyan, doesn't put on Tfilin, she is not modest. And so I go to, uh, I forgot who I spoke to, says, why don't you tell him to, to you know, to wake up and, and start going to Minyan? So I can't because, you know, I'm not modest. And then I spoke to him, like, why don't you tell her to start dressing up? He's like, I can't, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't go to Minyan, I'm to tell her I'm not modest. So instead of helping each other grow, they helped each other fall down more and more. And this is, unfortunately, sometimes you go and you, and you, you by the way, the person that you meet, the person that you end up marrying, is how you're going to be for the rest of your life. Some people say, listen, we'll grow together, but it's, you're growing, you're going the wrong way. I would say that's different from me now. You changed so much from the last three years. Yeah, because you grew together. But you, you didn't come in. How did it start? Start with Alex, no? Well, it started with me before we got married. And then it started... And then, and then it went with Alex. And then you and superseded then, him. Then I, <laughs> I asked. Yeah. But you see how it is. You guys are helping each other grow. As opposed to one person pulling the other person down. And when a person's not strong enough, that's what usually happens. That's why I tell everybody. The, the rule, the general rule for dating is date somebody slightly higher than you. Just slightly higher you in the spirituality. Because if you go slightly lower... Yeah, how do you boy know? should be higher or the girl should be higher? The girl should think the boy is higher and the boy should think the girl is higher. But how do you know? So you know by... by you could tell by their actions. It's a Jewish answer. Well, it depends who I speak to. If I speak to the girl, the guy should be higher. If I speak to the guy... Because everybody can be higher in a different aspect in, in itself. The, per, the, the idea is... First of all, there's a, there has to be a need to grow. If there's no need to grow, a guy's like, yeah, no, I'm cool where I am right now. I think I'm good. Uh, run away. Uh, you know. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't need to answer. All right. So, you know, the, yeah, there's some people that say, you know, like, in general, in the first date, now I'm looking to grow. I'm, I'm, I'm a very spiritual person. And I'm like, I, I'm just completely, like, involved with Judaism. And they know nothing about Judaism. They know nothing about God. They know nothing about Judaism. But they call themselves spiritual. They call themselves that. You have to know. You have to be perceptive enough to see where the, where this person is holding. Look, you can see little things. Does they make a bacha? Does they make a bacha? Do they, you know, how, how do they think of themselves? Um, you know, how do they dress themselves outside? Do they go to prayers? Do they dress like a Jew? Some people don't dress like a Jew. Don't dress like a Jew. I, you know, they, I don't know what they're afraid of. You live in Brooklyn, New York. Everybody's Jewish. In fact, people like to do business with Jews. They're like, oh, he's Jewish. He must have a lot of money. Let's do business together. You know? And so, but people still, for some idiotic reasons, decide not to dress like a Jew. As, as if they're allowed to do that. Luckily, it's a very big problem in itself. But people fall so, and I see this all the time, day in and day out. They're falling and falling, and they don't even realize it. And that's the saddest thing. That they grow? Yeah. I do see that they grow. Give me some hope here. Yeah. Well, it depends who you marry. Depends who you marry. I'm talking about the negative. But I've, oh yeah, I've seen plenty of people that they got married and they became so much stronger. Like, I was shocked. I have a guy, I have a very close, uh, a very close student of mine that, um, he, you know, he was, I don't want to use the, the word lightly, but he hated God. He, he very much disliked God to the tense that, uh, you know, there was a certain, you know, whatever. It was very, very a bad relationship, let's just say that. And he got married, and it is un, uh, you know, I would never have expected that. Like, Shabbos, kosher, Yom Tov, he wants his wife to be tzniyas. He wants, he wants like, you know, like he was coming to learning Torah. And, you know, it, it's something that I've, I've, I'm shocked. Sometimes I'm, I'm really surprised about where people end up. And, and this guy was like, you know, and, and Baruch Hashem, he got lucky that he did it. But not everybody gets lucky. Some people, they'll go on, they, they go whatever. I fell in love. Oh, I fell in love. You know, what could I do? Uh, what can I do? I fell in love. That's it. I, I, I'm there. You know, it, it's it's something that you know. I, I gave a class. I gave a class recently for the men on on a men topic, and um, <laughs> there. Uh, oh, you ready to send it? Okay. So. Who 
so you're censoring it. Yeah, um, and it's very interesting because um, so I have to be careful what I said because I said that now. I have to, you know, whatever. But um, like I, I can't even, I, you know, I have to, I have to stop in mid sentence because what I'm about to say, people are going to be able to figure it out. It might be lost and lost. So I apologize. I can't continue with the story that I just said, uh, and it's my mistake because of the, the how I started it. But but the idea behind it was where people go into a relationship together and they think that's it. They're sold, sold together. And I'm not saying like let's say somebody's dating and they are they see themselves falling. I'm not saying that's it. End it. You have to go, and you have to go and try to work it up. Make sure that you're going in the right in the right path. Whichever this is so important because whoever you marry, that's how your that's how your your children are gonna grow up. You know, I heard this. I think it was this week from Zachariah Wallstein, which is so true. Uh, and so I, I heard of the, his class. I think it was this week, if I'm not mistaken, the first few minutes of it. And you know, it, it, the, he he was saying how there was a story where there was a woman. I think it was, it was a Jewish woman that was standing on the fifth floor in Coney Island. I don't remember how long ago this was, and uh, in the Jewish area, and she was going she was going to jump. And the policeman, you know, the negotiators came. Everybody was trying to convince her. Nothing was doing. She was going to jump. And you can't like intimidate her because if you know you have to work very carefully because then they could jump if they'd be intimidated so they found there was a jewish guy walking about they're like i don't know how this even came about they're like you're jewish she's jewish maybe you could do something because we can't do anything so he said fine and he goes and he speaks to her and he says like this and he says um he tells her and he says listen he says you want to kill yourself you can kill yourself um he says but you can't murder the four children and she's like looking around he's like children's like what four children he's like what are you talking about and he's like he's like you know when you're jumping he says you're mur- murdering your four children that are supposed to come out from you he says, there will never come into the world because you're jumping. And you have no right to murder your children. And she heard that. She got off and she went down. And they took her, whatever, obviously, to, you know, to the mental hospital. Which this idea is so true. I don't know how. I don't know the, the details no, of the story. The, um, this was in Coney Island. I, I don't remember where it was. So, but, but the idea is, is that when you're dating somebody, you're, this, is what you're, this is how your children are going to be raised. Now, if you want to live this way of your life, that's your prerogative. That's your, that's your decision. But who gives you permission to destroy your children? Who gives you permission to have your children be raised in a secular place? Who gives you permission to go and, and, and put your children in, a, in an abusive relationship because the guy is, has anger issues or whatever it is? You have, when you're thinking about this, you're not getting married. Just you, you have your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren. And this is, this is an unbelievable idea. This is so, such a genius. So let's say you're, you're dating somebody or you're friends with somebody. The first thing is always try to raise them up. Before you dump them, obviously try to raise them up. Try to bring them closer to, uh, you know, to Judaism. And if one person starts raising it up, generally speaking, the other person does it. And this works the same way if you're married ready. If you're married ready and, you know, your spouse is down, you know, spiritually, and the other one, you try to raise them up. You have to tread carefully, especially dating-wise. Why I like to speak about dating because dating is easier. Be like, because the guy could be like, hates exercise with a pat. He's allergic. He's allergic to exercise. People told me that. So, you know, I'm, I'm allergic to, to you know, the, like, how can you be allergic? Uh, I sw- I'm allergic to my own sweat, which apparently is like a thing. It's a real thing. So, um, and, and so, you know, and I, I didn't realize, but people are like, you know, they're allergic to cold, they're allergic to this, which is, I'm not judging anybody on their thing, but there's some people that are like allergic to becoming better people also. And, but what happens is when you're dating with somebody, so you're always like, oh, madame, please, I open the door for you. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Afterwards, you know, after you're engaged, you'll be like, you know, you're, you're like, come on, Hong Kong, you know, the door is open, let's go, we're late. And, uh, you know, so things change. So when you're dating, it's very easy to change a person. After you're married, you know, it depends. Depends how whipped the other person is. But generally, it's, it's, more, it's more difficult. So 
That's why I like being specifically on the, on, on the dating path. But this is a, of utmost importance. If you're supposed to have a good friend, and if you're required to have a good friend, and required to have a good neighbor, all the more so are you required to have a good spouse. And you have to make sure, and if you're married already, don't be like, well, you're not good, I'm going to find somebody else. No, it's obviously something you have to work on together and, and, and grow together. So now, the Torah speaks about, and it's getting late, so we're going to wrap it up in a few minutes. The Torah speaks about the... Um, you know, the, the idea of having a good neighbor. Now, when you think about it, like, who cares who your neighbor is? You live in Brooklyn, you don't even know your neighbors. When do you say hi to your neighbors? When you see them somewhere else out of Brooklyn. They're like, oh, wait, you live on my uh, block, right? They're like, hey, how's it going? You know, like, nice meeting you. And also, you're like chit chatty, like, oh, I was there before, like, never before. And you're like talking for like hours. Meanwhile, you see each other in the street the next week, and, you know, you give them the nod, you know, the Brooklyn nod. For the first time? No, oh. she lost weight. So what are you doing? You know, like, what pills are you on? No, I'm just kidding. Um, so, who's your doctor? Um, all right, I should stop now. Anyways, <laughs> so yeah. Oh really? So, no, but no, that's good. So you have a good neighbor. <laughs> the, see how I flip that? Um, so. But the idea is, when you think about it, why does the Torah tell you to have a good neighbor? What, what, what's neighbor's pleasantries? Hi, nice to meet you. Good morning. When's the garbage out? Okay, well, alternate side. You know, whatever. You speak about the, you know, the weather, right? Because that's a very important topic everyone likes to speak about. Uh, the weather today. Yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. I can't believe it. New York. You know, like, like they're blaming New York for their weather. You know, like, uh, you know, yesterday was so nice. What's, what's going on now? I know. You know, like... Uh, <laughs> so I, I never understand when people speak about the weather. It, it just like I, I don't understand. Like it, it really is, but I. It's like not your elevator. That's like my Italian. I could be there for a half hour, and I'm like, oh my god, what do I do? Yeah. I, no, it's an exaggeration. I don't know how she does. Let me taste a little bit of my pie. No, no, no. She's sweet, but it's like it doesn't even start from the weather. Yeah. She's telling me when I'm getting my windows done. Oh, really? It's amazing. <laughs> oh, that she's a Yenta. Okay, good. <laughs> so, all right. Um, so the idea is, so what's, what's, so, what's so important about neighbors? And this is something so, so important, especially people that are looking to move out, looking to buy houses. This is a very, very important uh, concept. That neighbor means, neighbor is a completely different influence than a friend. A friend is always, is, is by, I'm sorry, a friend is by your side. When, when you invite them, when you go out, a neighbor is always by your side. Day in and day out, they're always there. But the difference is like subtle, they, they, the neighbor sets standards. When you're in a community, there's certain standards to the community. And you have to live by that standards because you feel to be an outsider. I've heard this example once. So let's say you're in an Orthodox community and you drive to the synagogue because you're not Orthodox and you're very comfortable with your religious you know, affiliation. And you drive to the synagogue. What happens the first time you pull into the synagogue parking lot? Everyone's like, you know, like, children, don't look, don't look. Don't, you know, don't look at the person. You know, like, so... Even though you might be comfortable, you'll like, you, you'll be like, you feel really bad. No one wants to be an outsider. No one likes to be an outsider. So you want to, you know, delve into the same community. It's the same idea. If you're in a certain community, and you know, like, there are certain communities people speak me, to speak me about, about moving, and I'm like, I wouldn't move there. You know, there's certain, I've been there a few times, and you see, you see how people live there. There are certain communities, Sneot is not a, is not a thing. Like it's, everybody loves you. Everybody, you know, skirts above the knees is a, is a normal thing over there. It's not where I would want to raise my daughter to, you know, where, where she walks out on the street and she sees somebody in shul who's also there with also a, you know, a skirt above the knees. Cause then she, she becomes like, okay, this person's religious, this person's religious, must be, it's allowed, which is 100% not allowed. But they, so you become influenced by the society that you live in. You become influenced where you are in. This is why in, in you know, in neighbor, where you're living in, the Torah says, find out where your neighbors are before you rent, before you buy. Cause for this is going to depend on who you are. If you go and you end up moving to Bnebra 
If anybody doesn't know what Bnei Brak is, um, you take Bar Park, the most strongest Hasidic religious place possible. Like you know, the, like like, and and you take that and you times that by a thousand. To the hundredth power, and then you go to Nebag. That's it. Or you go to Masharim. You know the places are just like you know. If you wear colored clothes, you're you know like it's already a problem as, as as itself. But let's say you move over there. Let's say you know for whatever reason you move over there, and you know even though your ideas might not be the same with them, you'll still start acting similar to that, and eventually you'll becoming that. I know somebody who ends up living in a very very religious. He was like very secular. Very, no, I'm saying he was absorbent. It was like I shouldn't say secular. Very modern Orthodox. Very modern. And because of the area that he lived in, he became very religious. But to make matters even more interesting, his children became like rabbis. Like all, like he would never. He's like I. I asked him like, how did this happen? I have no clue. I don't know. I have absolutely zero idea, zero recollection on why and how they became like this. Um, so you know that the neighborhood makes a very very strong influence on you and on your um, and on your family. The there's a mishnah in Pekeh about. Let me finish them. So, <laughs> no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Um, the, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. I apologize. Um, I'm good. Now she'll be away. I embarrassed myself enough. Yeah. Okay. A what? Right, so that's that's so it depends who you associate with. That's why Brooklyn, I don't feel as a community. I don't feel like it's a maybe the Syrian has their own thing. The Gorski, the, it's 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 yeah, it's exactly right. So it's that, but generally you move anywhere else in like except for the area, it's like everybody's with everybody. You have a you know Hasidic guy and one neighbor, then you have a Sparty guy, and then you have an Ashkenazi guy, and then you have a Yemenite guy. You have like everybody just like a big mix. So, but. So Brooklyn, you could really be in so many different communities. You could be in a certain place, but you could be part of it. But if, if you move to out-of-town areas, you really become like the out-of-town like thing. What? Like Lakewood. Lakewood, yeah, Lakewood is a good example. Yeah, Lakewood is a good example. The problem is Lakewood is growing so much now that there's other subset of communities now that are that are building up from that. Lakewood is like so busy. Long Island is also a good example. Yeah, there are more. Yeah. Staten Island feels it's part of Brooklyn. I don't know, but I don't know much about Staten Island. Huh? It's not? I don't know. Oh yeah, I don't know a lot about Southern Island. All I know is they have a um, something with the garbage goes there. I know. I don't know if that's true or not. It's not there anymore. Okay, that's all I heard about it. Okay. Anyway, so the Mishnah Pekiyavot says Rabbi Yochanan went and asked his students. He says, "Go and see which is the best best trait that a person must acquire." So one person said, "You know, a good eye." Another person said it was a good friend. Another person said, "Good neighbor." And we're going to focus on the two people that said a good friend and good neighbor. Which means is what is the best trait to have? They didn't even speak about themselves. They said, no, get a good friend. That's the best trait to have. And the other one said, Rabbi Yosef said, no, have a good neighbor. The Bartonura says, what is a good friend? A good friend is someone who rebukes you. Do you know what a good friend is? A good friend is when you're doing something bad, he or she, uh, obviously the same gender we're talking about, he or she is going and they're going to tell you, no, you're doing something wrong and stop it. I remember this so vividly. I think I even said this story once. It was before, when, this is when I was still single, um, you know, years ago, and I was driving back from Lakewood after a shot of spending Shabbat there. It was maybe one or two in the morning, and I was there, me and my friend. You know, even tell you, it's a, a very close friend of mine from Australia. I even tell you his name. His name was Benny. I'll tell you that. So now, if he's listening to this, he's, you know, I wonder if he's going to remember this. So, um, he, um, very close friend of mine from Australia, and I remember this so vividly. We were driving back. It was like it was one or two a.m. in the morning. We were driving back, and it, I don't know. It was like an hour and forty-five minutes, hour and a half drive. Um, you know, let's just say that. And because uh, we weren't speeding, we we're going right in the speed limit. Everything was kosher. And um, 
the entire ride, he was giving me rebuke, like nonstop, like, and it was like he was like it was constructive criticism, and. I wanted to open the door and push him out without stopping the car. Like, I even told him, I'm like, dude, stop. I'm like, I get the point, stop. He's like, mate, I'm not going to stop. He's like, because I love you. And, and, you know, and he's like, yes, I care about you. And, and he kept on, he kept, and he, wow, he gave it to me over the head again and again and again and again. And to be honest, I don't even remember what it was about. All I remember was how annoyed I was. That's what I remembered. And that, but... I remember afterwards, after that hour and 45 minutes of, 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 of like constructive criticism, I appreciate it because I ended up did listening to him. Because that is a good friend. A good friend is not like, oh my God, you did the worst sin. Don't worry about it. You're such a good person. You have a heart of a gold. I've never met such a beautiful heart and blossom into flowers. And, and, uh, and you know, that's what people do. That's what people do. Right, but that's not the thing that you're supposed to do. That's why you're coming to class to learn. What are you supposed to say? That when you're Yeah. It is, it is. It's not comfortable. No one likes to be doing like you're a bad person. You did a bad thing. Obviously you don't say it like that. But you should you should go and you have to obviously do it in a constructive way. And it has to be in a nice way, in a polite way. It can't be like you know, downgrading. The way that you give criticism is that you you uh, don't downgrade the person, you downgrade the act. You display, you're like, how could you do that? You're such a good person. Like, it's so not like your type to do that thing. You know, you should really do repentance, you really do shavah, it's a really serious thing. Yada, yada, yada. It's not a class on rebuke. But, uh, yeah, of course. You should. Do you have a class on rebuke? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Aren't you so, supposed to give rebuke right after because you're supposed to assume they did shuvah? If it's a righteous person, then you're supposed to assume they did shuvah. But if so, you see someone doing something wrong and they confront you and they say, hey, listen, I did X, Y, and Z, said, um, you rebuke them. I've had people... This is I, friends growing up. They would tell me these things that they don't speak to me anymore, probably for this reason, because they'll tell me like, "Hey, I did this," and they were like bragging about it. And I'm like, you know, dude, that's a very big, you know, sin. That's a very, you know, you know, you have to chew for that. And he was like, he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyways, uh, <laughs> you know, and I like, go speak to like, I'm like, you know, like didn't stop me. I, I, it doesn't bother me. Um, but but no, you, this is what you as a friend you you have to give constructive criticism. The um, you know, I, I was speaking to this group of people. And um, we were speaking about, uh, you know, I gave this class recently about uh, one of their friends was dating an Anjou. And we were speaking about how to go about doing it and what he's supposed to do. And it turns out that they all went to public school, every single one of them. And I was like, you know what? I'm not surprised. Did he meet her in public school? And he was, they were like, yeah, I met her in public school. I was like, this is why you shouldn't be in public school. So what do you think? You're going to public school. You're there with girls or the opposite gender, which don't dress at all. Do, I don't think they even have a dress code in public school. They do? Oh, but I guarantee you it's probably very nothing. Um, so, I don't know. Oh, it's like you don't have to believe it. You don't have to follow it. Depends what public school. So you got a good public school. I... On, 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 um, you know, like, my yeshiva is right near a public school. Sometimes when I pass by it, I have to pass, you know, I see, I see the, you know, the kids going out in public school. And this is like, you know, I, I stopped going that route because I'm like, this is not, this is, I'm like, we're, this is not a school. That means, uh, yeah, whatever, I don't want to call out names, but yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, that place is scary. I went to public school. I didn't go to public school like that. That place is crazy. That place is, is, yeah. I have students that have been to that school. They call it yeshiva maro. And I'm like, if that's where you're going to yeshiva, then, you know, that, it's a reform yeshiva, if anything. <laughs> Anyways, so, um, but, but as I was speaking to them, it turns out, uh, we were going around the table seeing who's keeping Shabbat and who's not, and then we convinced everybody to keep Shabbat. But we ended up to one, it turns out one kid, he's, he was 16 years old and he's in public school. I'm like, aren't you learning from your friend? And the other, you know, the, his brother was here. He's like, no, 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 you don't understand. He will never do it because I will kill him if he does and he dates a non-Jew. 
I'm like, oh, and you think, what do you think the, you know, his brother said about this person who's dating an Andrew? As if they think, no, it's okay, I can go to public school, I won't get influenced. Are you crazy? I know people that went to public school. I deal with them. They are so influenced. They're so, and you cannot tell me, this originally education. I'm like, come on. You know, people in public school, you know, I've, I've spoken to people. Education is definitely not what I'm getting. Especially in the, you know, moral FDR, all these places. There is no education over there. I am like, you know, like, education may be strict, you know, how to deal with a drug dealer, possibly. You know, but... <laughs> Further than that, like, well, it's really important how to know how to speak to a drug dealer. <laughs> I guarantee you, you can have plenty of street knowledge without it. There's plenty of successful businessmen that went to yeshiva, and that probably, if you want to go percentage-wise, I guarantee you there's more in that than the public school uh, um, the public school thing. So, anyways, let's finish up over here with two uh, uh, short stories, and, and we'll call it a night. So... The, um, this story is a true story that happened on Saturday night, March 21st, 2009. Um, is that a special date? Or, uh, okay. So, um, there was the, uh, a group of terrorists that they... This story happened in Haifa, in Israel. A group of terrorists went and they put a, a uh, car full of explosive on, under the beams of a uh, mall in, in Haifa. And the idea was, is that they, you know, they, it would explode. And once it explodes, it's going to go and light the other cars on fire and hopefully come down the, break down the beams and crash it down. So, the, unfortunately, and due to a miracle, a complete miracle, they, um, the, the, there was a group of people that were walking by and they saw smoke coming out out of this car. And they notified the authorities, they came back, and even the, the Israeli prime minister at that time, who was nothing close to religious, he said this is a, a tremendous miracle, and uh, he himself said a tremendous miracle, they were able to dissolve, uh, diffuse the entire situation. But what really happened, so listen to this unbelievable story. There was uh, a few weeks beforehand, there was a young girl in Haifa who was having tremendous pain in her stomach. And they went to get tested, and it turns out that there was a very large cancerous growth in her stomach. <clears throat> and the doctor says that it's metastasized, it's spread, it's too late, the, you, we can't operate it. The best advice that they can give her is, for the next few weeks, go home, stay home, and, you know, be with your family. So, the, you know, as any family would do, they started begging, like, come on, this is a little girl, do the surgery, do something, you never know what could happen. Finally, after begging, 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 they decided, you know, like, what are they going to do? Fine, you know, for the sake of the family, they'll, they'll, do, they'll try the surgery. And they didn't even, they put in a very new doctor, like someone who doesn't have any experience, because this will be good for him experience. There's anything, according to medical science, there's nothing that can be done for this person. So, they went into, the, the girl went into, to, to, was getting ready for surgery, and this girl comes from a non-religious family. She went and she started praying to God. You know, usually there's no atheists in a the, in the foxhole, and she started praying to God. And she says, listen, you know, in the time of the Holy Temple, we will be able to give you a, um, you know, sacrifice. But now, we don't have any sacrifice. So she decided what she was going to do, she's a teenage girl, she went and she took all her modest clothing, and she took it out to her yard, and she lit it on fire, and she told God, this is my sacrifice to you. So this is my sacrifice to you. The, um... The next day, she went to the hospital in her only piece of clothing that she has left, which was a nightgown, which happened to be modest. One piece of clothing. She burnt everything. She was in it a full 100%. And um, when she went on the surgery, to some miraculous astonishment, to no one's understanding, they, the tumor was never metastasized. It was very small. And they took it out. It was benign. It didn't, it didn't, it, 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 there was nothing even uh, problematic with it. And uh, she, when she recuperated, she, when she got home, she, you know, she went and she gathered all her friends and she told her, she said, this is what happened and this is exactly the reason that it happened about her immodest clothing. It wasn't too long before her friends brought in all their immodest clothing and they also burnt the entire, um, you know, the entire, uh, all the immodest clothing. That Saturday night, 
that they found that bomb was the time where all the girls went to buy the, the modest clothing for the first time and since they, they you know since they, they burned their, their clothing. That's why the place was this story was unbelievable. This is why the the, the you know the, the story of the entire mall was saved in the merit of these of these uh, um, you know these uh, these girls. The, I want to finish with one final story which is you know an unbelievable story. The you know, there are times that your friends or your spouses, they get you upset. And you have to think about the bigger picture. Is it really worth it to get upset over, over stupid things? I mean, you're in the heat of the moment, so yeah, you know, you get really angry. But there are certain things that, you know, whatever, you know, just leave it. It's not the big deal. So he loves the toilet seat up, right? So there was a person by the name of Yankee. He married Rivka. And they had a great marriage. He married for 15 years. They had eight children. And Rivka was expecting in the ninth, the ninth child. And, you know, this uh, person, Yankee, the husband, he was very, very, you know the story? Oh, this just is, uh, uh, just, alright, whatever. Alright, so, anyways, so, so, there was, um, Yankee was a very neat person, he was like a neat freak, everything has to be exactly the way it is. You know, generally, how does it work? When you married, exactly the opposite. Ripko was exactly, everything was all over the place. And every time... You know, he would get, the husband would get upset. She would tell him in Hebrew, Zelo Chashuv. Zelo Chashuv means it's not important. Don't worry about what you're going to make a deal, so it's a big mess. Big deal, who cares? Zelo Chashuv. Fine. In the summer, they would go upstate. They had a bungalow upstate. And Rifka and the kids, you okay there? No. So, all right. So, so now, <laughs> so, <laughs> all right. So I'm not cutting anything. Is, I have no idea. <laughs> all right. So um, she, you know, every time that's how they would diffuse the situation. They, they had a bungalow upstate, and during the week he worked in his business, and from Thursday till till you know till Sunday night he would go up to to the mountains. So one Thursday night, one Thursday afternoon. He gets a phone call from his wife, Rivka, and he says, listen, honey, I, we're out of checkbooks. Can you please give me a, uh, can you bring up a checkbook? And he says, yeah, not a problem. I'll bring up a checkbook. Oh <laughs> years old, like, after. Uh, uh, so, so he goes and, no, what? Oh, the name? Okay, I'll change the name. Okay. I think that's where she's Okay, fine. So anyways, so um, the wife. Go, keeps wife. on calling like four times to the husband. Did you forget the checkbook? Did you get it? He's like, no, I, I told you, I have it. It's in the bag already. I put it in the tote bag. It's gonna, it's coming up. Don't worry about it. And she kept on calling. He's like, I need the job. He's like, yeah, it's coming up to you. So uh, Thursday, you know, Thursday night, he gets up over there. He puts, a, you know, he gives her the tote bag. Says the checkbook is in here, and he goes and he, uh, you know, does his thing. Friday afternoon, right before uh, Shabbat. He opens the door for the kids' room, and he sees the tote bag is hanging on one of the bunks. And he goes into peek inside, and oh, look, the checkbook is right there. And he's like thinking, he's like getting really upset. She's like, she called me four times. So important. Yet she didn't even take it out of the bag. But he figured, he says, you know, if I'm going to ask her, she's going to say, what? It's not important. You know what? He's not going to say anything. A week goes by. He comes back, you know, he goes back to the city. He works. He comes back that Thursday night. That Friday afternoon, he goes into the kids' room again, and he sees the tote bag still hanging in the same place. And he's like, if that's still there, you know, he walks up, he picks inside, he's like, oh yeah, it's still there. It didn't move since the previous week. She called him four times to make sure that it's there, and it's still standing over there in front of the kids. The kids could take it and start drawing on it. So he decided still he's going to hold himself back, and he's not going to do it. Another week goes by, same Friday, the checkbook is still over there. And he's boiling, but he calms himself down like a good husband, and he, uh, you know, he ignores him. That Tuesday, the following Tuesday, 
he gets a phone call from one of the neighbors in the bungalow colony and he said listen there's something wrong with the wife you know she was you know she went there was some complication in the in the you know in the labor she she's in the hospital now get here as fast as you can he drops everything and he drives straight up to the mountains into the near to the hospital that she was there unfortunately by the time that he um that he got there the complication was very severe and uh, the wife passed away yeah his wife passed away in childbirth and he was beyond himself he was you know and, and you know eventually you know they calm down be like you know you have to make some sort of preparations um and uh he went he went to the he went to the bungalow to take a few things and he saw the, the bag hanging out on the on the still on the you know on the bunk and he looks inside and the checkbook is still there and then he started coming to a fresh set of tears right uh, you know again he took out the checkbook that he brought up for her and the first two checks that he made was one of them was for the funeral home and the second one was for the Chavra Kadisha. And, uh, you know, and afterwards he took the bag and he inscribed in the bag, Zelo Chashuv, this is not important. There's many times in life that we go through our friends and we go through our spouses and they upset us and they cause us problems. But when you really think about it, you think about these three words, it's really going to take you a far away. Zelo Chashuv, it's not such a big deal. You have a good friend, you have a good spouse, don't fight over the small stuff. Make sure that, you know, you treat them. And it's so important, grow together. You have to grow together. If you're not growing together, very, very, very big problem. And if you're dating and you see that this is not going anywhere, big problem. It is a reason to stop. It even, if you see that it's just going down, that is a legit reason that it's going to, um, that, you know, to stop. Obviously, speak to a local Orthodox rabbi, someone who's well-versed in it. But if you have a friend that's bad and it's not growing and it's not, and it's just bringing you down, you stop being friends with that person. Pick, choose your friends wisely, and choose your spouse even more wiser. Questions? Yeah, isn't there like some kind of like line where it's just too much? You're just putting everything away, like everything is just looking fine. I'll let this go. Let this Obviously, go. it has to be a relationship. You can't just boil inside because what happens when you boil inside? Eventually, it's a nuclear explosion. So it has to be, you can't keep everything inside. Communication is very important in marriage. And if you don't have good communication, it's a very bad thing. People go through marriage and they're like, okay, I'm not going to talk about it. I'm just going to, uh, what is it called? I'll, I'll uh, suppress it. This is not healthy. The key is good communication. If it bothers you and you want to say it, say it in a very calm way the next day. Don't say anything yet. Bring it up next day. Say this bothered me a lot. You know, when you're relaxed already, and this is the issue. Can you, you know, we need to work on this. And that's always you're like you're ready, not so angry about it, and you're you're able to deal in a more, uh, you know, you know, logical perspective as opposed to an emotional one. Mm-hmm. Any other questions? Yes. So with Oven Van his wife. No, his wife. Okay, we'll go. We'll do that at the end. Any other questions before we get into that? What is considered a bad friend? Somebody who um, who is is a habitual sinner, constantly doing bad things against the Torah, and bringing you down. Also, even if they don't bring you down, even if they don't bring you down, but if they're just a bad influence, think of it this way: Would you let your daughter or your son hang out with that person? And if that would be like, uh, you know what, maybe not, then, you know, you should. Depends, depends on the, depends on the, uh, depends if they know this. Yeah, so it depends, it depends on the, it really depends on the, it's a scenario by scenario. You know, are you getting influenced by them? Are you like, oh, that's, you know, really nice dress. I want to wear something like that. And you're like, okay, it's very difficult for you. Then yeah, it's, it's not healthy for you to be there with that. If it's something that that's all they do, but they don't really know about Snoo, they don't really know about it. So, you know, this is where you would go and bring them to a class about Sanyot or send them a class about Sanyot or, or talk to them about that. And if you continue with seeing that they're not changing and they're staying the same way, then it's not going to be beneficial for you. Especially if you get married and they get married, they're going to live, you know, eventually your friend, your children are going to become friends. 
you don't want your children hanging out, you know, with a, something like that. You might think that you're strong enough, but you always know you want to protect your children. Just like a mama bears, right? They all, so protect your children by anything. So, the same idea, you know, that would be a good uh, concept. Really you already love them, even though you don't know. That's a good thing. That's, a, <laughs> that's very smart. <laughs> Any other questions? Off the camera. Oh, no, I'll tell you. Okay, questions off the camera. Okay. Okay. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.